people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Ed Glazer. He is the author of How the World Remade Hollywood, Global Interpretations of 65 Iconic Films. I have mentioned Ed on the show before. He is the man behind the Deja Vu series on YouTube. You can find that under Neon Harbor or go to neonharbor.com. His book is freaking fantastic. It is available now through McFarland Press. I will include a link to where you can pick that up in the show notes. Probably one of my favorite film books that I've read in a long darn time, which is saying something because... That's pretty much all I read. So definitely check out the book, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Ed Glazer, I don't say this to a lot of people, but I'm actually a fan of your work. Oh, thank you very much. I have been following your YouTube channel for years and have actually name-dropped you on the podcast several times because you do amazing work. Oh, my goodness. I Well, I'm, I feel a little bit bad that I haven't been doing much on my YouTube channel for a while. I really ought to rectify that. Well, I think you've been a little bit busy with this new book. Yeah, I, I guess that's technically true. So how did How the World Remade Hollywood Global Interpretations of 65 Iconic Films come about? Basically, because I wanted them to let me back into England. I was in London in 2018 as a guest for the premiere of the 2K restoration of the Turkish Star Wars. And I discovered that everyone in England has written a book. All my friends there had written books. Everyone I met had written a book. The cashier at the fish and chips place had written a book. And I thought these people are being very polite and tolerant, but I should probably write a book before I come back. So uh, when I got home, I decided to finally write the book that um, uh, some friends of mine suggested that I write a number of years ago. Um, my colleague, Ian Robert Smith, has written an amazing book called The Hollywood Meme that looks at international remakes and ripoffs, but it's geared towards a more academic crowd. It covers about 12 films, and I wanted to do something for people like me who aren't especially academic-oriented and uh, just cover a larger number of films. So I set out to write about the stories behind 75 global remakes and ripoffs of Hollywood movies over a bunch of different genres. It is 75 remakes, 65 films, which was a point of confusion for everybody, I think. I remember pitching a bunch of different titles, and I think the one that McFarland liked was Global Interpretations of 65 Iconic Films. And so uh, there are multiple remakes of certain films, usually just two in some cases, but for Superman and Star Wars, I did three. But I think when I cut the trailer for the book, originally I had it say, uh, 75 remakes of 65 films. And I showed it to some people and they were like, I, that was confusing. And so I just, I kind of omitted that part. You get 10 extra. Writing about foreign films is not your day job. A lot of what I do is uh, video work and film work. So it's a little bit of all kinds of things uh, with regards to video and film. You know, I've done a handful of uh, feature length films, all very low budget, a handful of web series, I worked on that 
restoration of the Turkish Star Wars. So yeah, it's it's a lot of different kinds of video and film stuff. How did you become the foreign remake guy? I've always been interested in remakes uh, in the ways that films are reworked for a new audience or for some different artistic or commercial purpose. And I'd wonder why, say, John McTiernan's remake of Norman Jewison's The Thomas Crown Affair worked so well, while his remake of the same director's Rollerball absolutely did not. I remember when the American version of The Ring came out, I watched the Hideo Nakata version and the remake on the same day and really enjoyed comparing the two. In college, I did sort of a video essay on remakes, all Hollywood remakes though, um, before video essays were really a thing, several years before YouTube existed. But it was around that time too that I discovered an interest in international remakes of American films. I had just read all of Thomas Harris's Hannibal novels, and I was revisiting all of the movies. By that time, there were two versions of Red Dragon, the one from 2002 and Manhunter from 1986. I was curious if there were other adaptations I wasn't aware of. Sure enough, IMDb revealed an unauthorized remake of Silence of the Lambs from India called Sangharsh. What's more, it was a musical. So obviously, I ordered the DVD, even though it had no subtitles, and it was wild. I was fascinated with what it kept from the Hollywood movie and what it changed. Why were there songs? Why is Buffalo Bill now a child murderer? Why is Hannibal handsome and smoldering? I also became curious about what other kinds of international remakes and ripoffs were out there, so I started poking around the internet. The first thing that came up was the infamous Turkish Star Wars, The Man Who Saves the World. Colorful, low-budget, action-packed sci-fi hodgepodge with footage lifted from Star Wars and an entire score cribbed from other movies. Watching that with friends on Google Video back when that existed was a particularly psychedelic experience. It felt like it came from an alternate dimension. But of course, it didn't. People made it. There were reasons it looked like it did. There was presumably an entire industry behind it, one that I knew nothing about. As I sought out other interesting international remakes and ripoffs, I started researching them, the people who made them, the conditions they were made in, the way their cultures consumed films, their contemporary political landscapes, and so on. Eventually, I had amassed dozens and dozens of movies and a collection of notes and scribblings about them. Bollywood Harry Potter, Indian Jaws, Korean Tron, Turkish Batman, Japanese Planet of the Apes. Somewhere in there, a friend of mine had directed me to a YouTube clip of a movie called Corcuses, a Turkish Rambo. It featured a muscular guy in a black tank top rampaging through an enemy camp with a rocket launcher made out of wood that fired like a pop gun. That one I tried to track down in an English language version, but none existed. So I got the foolish idea to buy the rights to the film myself and dub it, which I did in 2009 and released on DVD as Rampage. Doing that opened more doors and gave me an introduction to Turkish film scholars and even actors from the industry. It's been kind of a snowball effect, and I guess the snowball's still rolling. That's the thing I like about your book so much is that you encapsulate the plot, take us to a certain point, and then it's almost like a dissolve. And it's like, all right, here's the story. Here's what's happening behind the scenes to make this movie the way that it is. And I especially love the idea of the 
cultural differences. You know, I had never known about the uh, Egyptian Rocky Horror until I saw your video on it, which, of course, is you also write about in the book. That whole thing, you know, obviously homosexuality, not really something that you're going to see on Egyptian screens. So the way that they change it and what those changes are, just amazing. I do think that a lot of these kinds of films get sort of pigeonholed into a kind of ironic, snarky sort of category. But the idea that people sort of see clips from these movies out of context, they laugh at them, they share them, other people laugh at them. But there's not really an understanding of or really a desire for understanding what they are, where they come from, why they look like what they look like. I always find that sort of unfortunate because I think you can have the joy of watching something unusual and new and strange and still appreciate how it came to be. Yeah, I always like that echo of our culture or other people's cultures reflected off of us or from them back to us. It's just to see how that goes. You can learn a lot about yourself by seeing how other people interpret your own art. That's exactly uh, what interests me. It's always been kind of fun to do that. I remember I watched, there's a Hong Kong visual effectsy action film called A Man Called Hero. And it takes place in Chinatown, New York. And of course, it's all shot in Hong Kong. Uh, but it's really marvelous seeing the way that they portray America. It was in the, it's like takes place in the late 1800s, I think. The Statue of Liberty is still there, and they actually have a big kung fu fight on the Statue of Liberty, which is all created with like CG and little bits and pieces of practical uh, stuff. And it's it's great because you're like, what is this place? This place seems very strange, even though it's the country I live in. It must have been really tough for you. You talked about how difficult it was to track down the one version of Rambo. How did you manage to get your hands on some of these movies? There is no single answer. With Rampage, it was, I think there were some bootlegs floating around, but to get the beta cam that I used for the DVD, I reached out to a fellow named Bill Baronis in Greece, who sadly passed away a number of years ago. But at the time, he was releasing a number of Turkish fantastic films on DVD from Greece with Greek and English subtitles, and you can get them internationally. And he was a really sweet guy. He did a DVD release of Erchtevadam, the movie with Captain America and El Santo fighting evil Spider-Man and a number of other films. And I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in doing this thing. How would I go about it? And he got me in touch with Kunt Tolgar, who happens to be the director of the Turkish Superman, who also sadly passed away just a few weeks ago. And he didn't own the rights to the film, but he was able to negotiate the rights on my behalf through his office. And that's how I got the actual beta cam. Um, one of the most difficult movies to get my hands on was the Nigerian Titanic. I had uh, read about the film, but the thing about a lot of Nigerian video films is that they were made so fast that they don't last for very long. Like they make a film or they, they, at least at the time um, their industry has progressed so far in such a short time, but at the time they would make a movie, get it out there. And then like, it would just go away. And I actually got my copy of it from a professor of 
African studies at a university in Germany because you literally could not find it anywhere in the States. The biggest issue is that there are a lot of films that are simply lost. There's a couple of very old Japanese King Kong films, a number of Filipino Batman movies, a Turkish version of The Invisible Man, and loads of comic book adaptations, um, things like that. So it's those ones that simply don't exist. There are also a number of movies that, while obtainable, have never been translated into English. There's a Banglar King Kong a Filipino version of Predator, loads of Turkish, Chinese, Indian, and Egyptian films. You can get them, and I have some of them, but I'd love to have them with subtitles. How did you decide which movies to cover? Whim. Generally, it was the kinds of films that appealed to me personally, although family films, not as much, So, but I wanted to include family films because there's a lot of really interesting ones like the Indian Harry Potter, and there's the absolutely amazing uh, Russian Winnie the Pooh. Uh, so things like that. Like I really wanted those in there. I kind of didn't want to do uh, comedies or at least explicitly comedies. Uh, there's a couple of parodies that are in the book, but they sort of provide an interesting commentary on the source source material, but I kind of didn't want to do a remake of the whole nine yards or, you know, some of the Bollywood remakes of uh, American comedies. It just, it, there's a lot that's sort of lost in translation, or it requires you to know local references, not necessarily like really local, but it's one of those things where like there's comedy that you kind of have to grow up in the culture to get. I just kind of didn't want to navigate that for the book. If there's sort of screwball comedies and whatnot, I mean, you you run the risk of then having something that's just not as interesting to talk about behind the scenes. You really have opened my eyes so much to Turkish cinema. It feels like you could have just concentrated on that solely for this. I'm glad you didn't, but there is such a rich vein of Turkish cinema that you've really opened my eyes to. And I think anybody that reads this book or watches your YouTube channel really can appreciate now some of these decisions behind these films, which we weren't privy to before. Thank you for one. When I submitted this book to McFarland, the publisher, uh, they did actually write back and say, you know, there's a there's a preponderance of Turkish films in this book. Why is that? And you know, the answer is, I think, really just because that ended up being kind of where I accidentally specialized. Uh, because over time, I've talked to more scholars, I've talked to some of the people who made these films, and so forth. And so my my knowledge of that industry is greater than elsewhere in the world. But I also love those films. And one of the things I think people are not aware of is that at its peak, Yeshilcham, the sort of bygone Turkish Hollywood, was the third most prolific film industry in the world. So there's just a lot of films out there. Yeah, I know that we on the podcast have talked about things like the their version of Straw Dogs, just so many amazing strange turns of seeing again our culture reflected back to us and yeah those superhero films and the um the version of the phantom and just some of those heroes and to hear the stories behind why the phantom became such a popular turkish signature is just amazing the superhero stuff was just wildly popular there and you kind of didn't need to navigate the same sort of rights issues that uh, you did here and so you got a lot more superhero films than we did. Uh, and there were 
three versions of the Phantom, two of which came out the same year. And I'm like, oh, that's that sounds super fun. I would love to have been there and and enjoyed that. Do you now speak Turkish? I don't. I mean, I mean, not more than like a handful of words. Um, but but I do know a number of people who have helped me when I've struggled with translations and so forth. I had to get a number of uh, sources translated for my book. There's a lot of uh, research in um, magazine articles or newspaper articles and things like that that uh, I wanted to make sure I had access to. Well, that's the thing is the research. It feels like you must have been working on this for years because you do go really deep for 65, 75 times throughout the book. And I'm just like, wow, how did he find this out? Who did he talk to? I mean, how long did it take you to put this whole thing together? The book itself was two, two and a half years, but that was plus the eight, nine, 10 years that I was working on Deja Vu, my web series. And a handful of the films that were in that are now in the book, although there's much more information about them in the book than there was in the show. It's been quite a while. And some of the things that I discovered were sort of by accident or, gosh, there was the Mexican version of the mummy, the Aztec mummy. And there was a, this is one of those things that probably nobody cares about, but I felt really excited to discover which was that if you've ever seen any of the trilogy of movies, including Robot versus the Aztec Mummy on Mystery Science Theater, the narration begins talking about how this is based on real research by professors Hugh and Tooney from some psychic research institute in Los Angeles. And I'm like, that's really specific. As I was researching the book, I found reference to one of those names in some really obscure encyclopedia of Mexican film. I don't even remember where it was. It's somewhere in my bibliography, but I'm like, okay. And they referenced him as being present for like the Bridie Murphy phenomenon where there was this uh, housewife who was hypnotically regressed to a past life in the UK where she was named Bridie Murphy and that was that was really huge uh, for a while, and then it was sort of exposed as a hoax. But this guy was supposedly present, which I could find absolutely no uh, corroborating evidence for. But I now had a name, and I did a little digging on that person and discovered that Hugh and Tooney were not Hugh and Tooney. It was Hughes and Tawny, and they were both sort of self-described hypnotic regression specialists, except that Tawny, he ran this diploma mill in California uh, was a sort of fake PhD or a self-styled PhD. And Hughes was one of his, in giant quotes, students who has his material in one of Tawny's books called Hypnosis and You. That was a wild story. And finally, I discovered who Hugh and Tooney were. And you know, this doesn't really mean anything to anybody, but I was delighted. Is it the Aztec Mummy? Is that the series that they kept shooting less and less and they would use uh, more flashbacks to kind of pad out the story. Yes, that is exactly it. And so by the time you get to robot versus the Aztec mummy, the first hour of it is just footage from the last two, the first two films. And then there's a little bit of stuff and then the Aztec mummy and the robot fight for like mm, 10 seconds at the very end. And that's it. It's a really fun episode of mystery science theater. So I recommend that if you don't want to actually watch the whole film. 
obviously I know you have an affinity for what is known commonly as the Turkish star Wars, the man who saved the world. What are your other favorites of these films? I love the Turkish Batman. That one's loads of fun. Uh, it's sort of a James Bond meets Batman kind of thing. Uh, very 60s, I guess, even though it was made in the 70s. One of the ones that I found absolutely fascinating was Our Friend Power 5, which is a South Korean Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which is not based on any Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic or series, but rather purely on the action figures. And it was made to sell bootleg action figures. That one is wild. And the movie itself is just bonkers because not only is it not like anything that you've ever seen for these characters, but also it features live action and then also animation whenever they have visual effects that they cannot actually create in live action. And so it'll like switch between them at random and sometimes they'll just animate photos and it's like, I love the fact that they were, I love any kind of film where they reach beyond their means because I would rather see something amazing that perhaps isn't achieved especially well than watch people in a room talking, except for The Room, the movie The Room. Then, I'll, then I'm like, that doesn't count. That one's, that one's also amazing. I don't mean to turn the tables on you, but I've kind of lived with a lot of these films for a long time. And it's sometimes hard for me to tell what resonates with other people. I was curious if there were any that really spoke to you or, or were like, oh, this sounds fantastic or crazy or really interesting. Well, the one that really caught my attention was the Russian remake of 12 Angry Men. And then I didn't realize that there were so many interpretations of 12 Angry Men. And you just rattle them off in the book, just like, well, there's this uh, Hong Kong version, this Japanese version. I'm like, whoa, now do I have to track down all these? It's like you can make a whole book just on interpretations of 12 Angry Men. It is really interesting. And the Russian version called 12 is a beautiful film. Like It's really well made. And the first time I saw it, with friends, we're like, this film is fantastic and very much recommended. And then I kind of dug deeper into it and I thought, well, I mean, it is a beautiful film, but it's also very authoritarian in a way that you might not realize if you're not Russian, because it's made by a guy who is really pro-Putin. And the kind of message of the film is sort of like authoritarianism is great. You need the one guy who's like, he's, he knows what justice really is. So there's this whole kind of twist at the end of the film that isn't in the classic version of 12 Angry Men or the stage play or, or anything. You can kind of get a sense of it from that. But uh, what, what is fascinating, like you say, is that not only are there these versions of 12 Angry Men from Germany, from Hong Kong and elsewhere, but they're in countries where juries don't work like that. In Russia, they don't work like that. The one in Hong Kong is particularly strange because... And you know what? I'm actually, I'm blanking because it might not be Hong Kong. I think it actually might be mainland China. In order for them to kind of get around it, they set it up as an experiment, a like uh, a mock trial or a mock jury, which is a solution. But on the other hand, it takes away all of the urgency and all of the stakes, which was one of the major criticisms of the film. Yeah, I was really glad that you covered, what is it called, Den D, the Russian version of Commando. Oh, yeah. 
when I saw that, I was like, wow, what is happening here? So to read the backstory behind it, I was so glad for that. Mm, and also very right wing. But again, the original one kind of is too. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Well, yeah, just to see the way that politics colors these. I mean, we talked a little bit about culture and religion and then, yeah, the po- political angle for some of these as well. And just reinterpreting things to be you know, more left or more right, or just, you know, adhering to different people's agendas is really wild as well. Yeah. And and the thing about that one is that it isn't, it wasn't just about taking commando and then using it to kind of be a right wing Russian film, but rather Mikhail Parchenkov who directed and starred in it. Commando was one of the films from his youth that he kind of thought was kind of an exemplar in whatever it was that he wanted to do. That's why he chose to remake it. And the thing is that when he was younger, uh, theoretically, that, that movie should not have been available because uh, the USSR was in power. They were very controlling with regard to what media from the West was allowed in. And Commando, like a number of films, was not. But there was this thriving black market for videotapes so that when Arnold Schwarzenegger came to Russia to shoot Red Heat, uh, he discovered that he had loads of fans there because they had seen his films by the black market, which super cool. You talked about how you chose these films on whim, but you do hold to some ground rules when it comes to this. I mean, the name of the book does have global interpretations of iconic films. There are so many movies that aren't iconic or that are not remaking Hollywood, but that are remaking films from other parts of the world. I mean, there's that whole phenomenon of North India, South India, and how people kind of remake their own movies, which is interesting, or things like the uh, Indian version of Old Boy. I mean, there's just so many interesting twists upon these things. And I'm, I'm glad that you kind of held yourself to, you know, looking at Hollywood films and how other people are interpreting them. But I'm curious if you were ever tempted to go beyond that or if you're just like, yeah, no, that's way too much work. The goal of the book or part of the one of the goals of the book is to kind of interest the reader in the filmmaking of other cultures, the films of other cultures, um, by introducing them to films that have familiar content, uh, which is a, a weird way of saying that. But the idea is that uh, it's it's for movie. It's just for generally. It's it's generally just for movie lovers, people who enjoy Hollywood movies, enjoy the Terminator or Aliens, or a combination of both. Yeah, or yeah, or exactly. Yeah, the very true, uh, or you know, Harry Potter, or uh, you know, any number of things. But and to interest them in sort of an alternate version of that that can then kind of open the doors to another culture. And so it's the familiarity that I think is is important. I actually have cheated a bunch with um, some of the Deja Vu episodes that I did. I did one on the Italian Godzilla, which is really just Godzilla, but colorized and re-edited and and dubbed and so forth. Or uh, along similar lines, the uh, South Korean Godzilla. So yeah, I I do cheat there, but I think I kind of didn't really want to in the book. And you're right. I wanted to stick to sort of household names in the book. I didn't always succeed or... I did cheat a little bit. There's, for example, a Taiwanese remake of Ms. 45 in there. And I don't think Ms. 45 is a really common household name, but 
uh, that one was just so interesting that I, I wanted to include it. And it's one of those films that like, if you know it, you know it. I know you talk about one, uh, either Mad Max Road Warrior type of remake, but just that movie or those movies, just the um, Escape from New York. I mean, some of those post-apocalyptic films, you can just go crazy, especially just even looking at Italian versions of that, not even looking at any other country, just looking at Italian remakes of the road warrior and or escape from new york you could be here all day you're absolutely right and the thing is that both of those are perhaps are perhaps those kind of combined are what the italians call a filoni which is uh, an italian word for thread and it's a really useful alternate word to use instead of genre because like the peplum, the sort of sandals movies, like the spaghetti Western, you'd have one particular film or one or two films that hit big in a particular genre. And the goal of all of these imitators was to keep Xeroxing that film with minor changes over and over and over again until it kind of peters out. That's why you get all of these Mad Max films, or it's why you get all of these spaghetti Western films, which only lasted over a very short period of time, but there were so many of them that it's really easy to forget that. And frankly, I wanted to cover for sure one of the Mad Max movies. I chose Warrior of the Lost World because it happens to be a weird case where it's directed by an American, and I was able to interview him for the book. I was able to get a little bit more of the story than I might have done for one of the other films. And that was what David Worth, right? Yes. He's so good. Yeah. He's, he's a load of fun. I really enjoyed talking to him. Well, the book is now available paperback as well as Kindle. It's been out since what early March of this year. Yes. And I cannot recommend it enough. It is probably one of the best film books that I've read in a long time. Definitely the best film book that you're going to read in 2022. And Ed Glazer, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. It's uh, been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
Oh, Mickey, how can we, how can we make a problem? 